Welcome back to the final half hour of Green Rush Live, our regularly scheduled live call-in. Well, it's a, like a call-in. You can chat in anyway. Here on Pro Cannabis Media, I am the founder of Pro Cannabis Media, Jimmy Young, and I'm so happy to have had uh, Josh Kincaid alongside with us. He is the host of the... Uh, tell us what you're the host of. Give yourself a plug, please, about the Talking Hedge. Go ahead, Josh. The Talking Hedge, your cannabis business podcast. There you go. Very good. <laughs> I love that. And uh, <laughs> and uh, anyway, so good job, Josh. And uh, he, he fills in on a somewhat regular basis here on Friday afternoons. I, I can make this announcement that um, we're going to take a break. It's summertime and everybody needs a break in the summertime. We take the last two weeks off of the year every year around Christmas and New Year's. We do it in the middle, uh, right around the 4th of July. And we're going to be doing that again. But we will, of course, be live streaming 24-7 a lot of our content. We call it the best of pro cannabis media over the next couple of weeks. Uh, we are still going to do one more We Talk News. That'll be next Thursday. And uh, after that, though, it's going to be repeats for a couple of weeks. And then we will be back in July. And I think it is July 17th off the top of my head but I can't see the calendar over there because it's too far away. Um, joining us for our final half hour is the communications manager of the Minority Cannabis Business Association. Um, and her first name is Precious because that's easy to pronounce. Um, Precious, tell me a what you do as the communications manager. And yes, you can introduce your full name to our public. Go ahead. Thank you so much, Jimmy. Hello, Pro Cannabis Media family. I'm Precious Osai-Garessa. So yes, that would have been a mouthful for you. Osege Arese. All right. Osege Arese. Okay. Of Nigerian. Thank you, Precious. I appreciate it. But I also like to go with Precious. Just no last name. Gives it a lot more effect and drama. Um, but no, I'm happy to serve as the communications manager for Minority Cannabis Business Association. We are a national trade organization uh, with members from our corporate members to small individual businesses to just individual advocates that are supporting our mission, which is really to build an equitable cannabis industry across the board. Uh, we're doing that with our board and staff, and we're just excited to see how we can, you know, make some change on a federal level to benefit everyone in cannabis. Right, 100%. And uh, expungement is is kind of the the, the word for um, Senator Cory Booker from New Jersey as as federal reform gets talked about, um, he certainly is waving that flag uh, as well. Uh, which state, is New York State getting it right? Where are you located, first of all? Yeah, so I'm in Jersey. Okay, um, perfect. Yeah, where our team is spread all over. MCBA is based out of Washington, D.C., so really at the center of a lot of the political madness that happens around cannabis. But no, New York is interesting. We all knew New York would be a tough, you know, egg to crack when it comes to the cannabis industry because it has such a large legacy market. It has such a rich tradition culturally with cannabis. So how that would interact on a regulated space was going to be an interesting rollout. And it started really great with the statue. We really started really great with a lot of the promises from our legislators, the $200 million fund, the promise of an equity officer, an advisory board, the promise of, you know, allocations for licenses for definitely those who were impacted by the war on drugs. And much like we expected, that rollout will take some time. And as fast as they want to get the market open, that's where you'll start to see the gaps. 
And that's where we're starting to see in New York. They want to move at the speed of lighting to open up the market by end of the year. <laughs> and when you do that, you really leave out a lot of the details and the nuances that we even reported on in our National Cannabis Equity Report that says these are the main barriers that are going to affect people of color really, you know, entering this space, especially when you have a large legacy um, operation. Like we're seeing in California, a lot of the regulated space can no longer compete with legacy operators. You know, that is their main competition and they are getting beat two to one every single time. So to really avoid that in New York, the rollout does have to be really consistent with speaking to those people who wanna find space here, but can't go through the bureaucratic just mess that we know to be the cannabis licensing process. Yeah. You know, the expression dog years, right? Yeah. <laughs> cannabis years, okay? Yeah. It just doesn't happen fast. Massachusetts, it took us a couple of years to get it going. It was a directive by the governor that he wanted to walk before they ran. I get it. Um, he didn't need to shut down all the adult use dispensaries during the pandemic, but he did. Okay, so I'm just going to leave it at that. That's a fact. Um, Josh, I know you've got a boatload of questions uh, for Precious, I so do. I'm going to I'm going to put you on the spot and uh, and ask you to take it away. Go ahead. <laughs> I appreciate that. So in 2018, I was writing a bill in Washington to overturn a Class C felony on maintaining and, and operating a marijuana lounge. And through that process, I covered at least 12 different bills, New Jersey, New York included on their um, social equity um, piece within their consumption or hospitality, cafe, lounge, whatever it is, wherever it was. I was looking at that. I'm wondering if you um, can grade that implementation in Jersey and in your area, uh, grade it from A to an F on, on how well that's rolling out, as well as what are some of the major barriers for minor, minority cannabis entrepreneurs at the moment? Yeah, so I think about it like this. Cannabis as a regulated, regulated, um, regulated commodity is just new to regulators, to legislators, to everyone. So then to throw on the hospitality sort of, you know, measure is even more new. And that's scaring the mess out of everybody. Even in Jersey, we don't even have an edibles market right now. Um, it's just pure flour. They didn't want to implement that too fast because they realized we have to sort of slow roll this out before, you know, it can be a beast. Um, so that's the same thing when it comes to cannabis lounges and the hospitality. Now within the New Jersey legislation and our regulations, you know, there are opportunities for those cannabis lounges and for those cannabis um, hospitality areas, but it's attached to dispensaries. So you have to be a retail license in order to even have a lounge. So it does make it very specific and it makes it extremely hard if you wanted to operate a lounge independently. It's almost, it's not doable in Jersey unless you're still in that legacy side. So you would have to be a retailer, which means you're gonna have to go through all of the hoops which it takes to be a dispensary and which we all know it's tough especially in the New Jersey as lucrative, I mean, in a market as lucrative as New Jersey that just saw $24 million in one month. So you can imagine all the sharks are swimming around to also get those um, coveted licenses. So it's gonna be a while. And we also see New York taking a stab at those licenses, but really putting a focus on it being social equity based. So those license holders should be minority, people of color, people impacted that should hold those licenses first. Now we see that can help too. You know, you talked about Massachusetts, Jimmy. They had where delivery licenses were, you know, slated specifically for social equity holders. 
So maybe something like that, that had a time frame that can sort of like benefit the people who really wanted to get into that cafe lounge hospitality route, which again, there's misconceptions about that. People think they're gonna walk into a building and just smoke covers your face and, you know, ventilation. It, it, that's what people, legislators, people in power actually think. So while we have to peel back the stigma, it's gonna be a while before we actually see that sort of lane open up the way we want. Um, and then right now, again, the bureaucratic sort of regulations you have to go through to even get a dispensary, now tap on a lounge, it's gonna be pretty difficult. So the key really for minority operators to get into this space is to educate yourself, find as much information as you can, um, you know, find as much time with your local legislators, because that's really where the fight is, is on the local route. You need to get city approval in New York, New Jersey to do anything. So that's where we're encouraging people to really start to dig deep on. You have to educate your your reps as well. They have no idea what's going on. When with when I was fighting the marijuana lounge bill, which is what it's called, not the cannabis lounge bill, but uh, they wanted the equivalent of a 747 jet to clear the room because they thought that you would just, like you mentioned, they have all this smoke and everything. So it was impossible to attach a 747 jet and clear the room at that rate of speed. So Morgan with Normal in the first segment talked about the ineffectiveness of lobbyists that seems pretty ineffective, but if you can educate, then maybe that can improve that. How effective are our lobbyists in your region? Are they making any progress at all? Yeah, so lobbying is definitely a double-edged sword, right? Because when it comes to cannabis, messaging and messenger are very important. Who is relaying the messages and who's receiving it are two very strong points that can change regulations that can change impact, that can drive so many things. Uh, we see lobbyists do, you know, definitely, when it comes to the federal level, have a lot of impact. Cause that's where we're not seeing the needle move a lot. Like for instance, safe banking, something that MCBA is working really hard for on a federal level lobbying for, um, lobbying senators like Cory Booker, who's really one of the people who we really want to understand more about his reservations on that bill. You know, that's where we're seeing some effectiveness as a messenger, as a lobbyist. Now me as that same lobbyist or, you know, other larger lobbyist companies, you go into a city like New York, New Jersey, and you're the one telling legacy operators, here's what A, B, C, and D you need to do to open up a business. They're not really gonna respond to you the same way, you know, it would on a federal level. You're not the correct messenger. Um, New Jersey is very interesting. Cause again, I say the fight is at the local level. What I'm seeing is a lot of minority operators, you know, cannabis operators, they want to get in the door, but you need to get a resolution or a letter written from a mayor saying, hey, we've given you clearance to operate in this space. While it might seem easy to get a, a meeting with a mayor as a resident as a, in the constituent, when it comes to cannabis, the line is extremely long. So that's when you do call lobbyists and you say, hey, I know you're going to a golf outing with the mayor. Do you mind putting in a word? You know, so there's ways that it can be effective. But I just encourage everybody, when you're looking at your lobbyists, you also have to ask yourself, is this something that I can do? Can I write this letter to the mayor? Can I go out and march to city hall and say, hey, I need to have a conversation. I'm a resident here. It's pretty important to me. Again, I always say legislators work at the behest of their constituents. And I tell people that's your power when it really comes to messaging. So like I said, it's a double-edged sword and where you want to swing it. I see the effectiveness on the federal level, but when it comes to hyper-local, that's where it can get really, really confusing. Then, then you don't have, um, in Massachusetts, they have a very controversial um, element to getting your license called a host community agreement. 
And it is tied to the fact that you really do have to uh, get a lease on a building and pay rent before you even apply for that license. Uh, there's also a 3% impact fee that they put on top of the taxes in each town because in the beginning they thought they'd have to put, you know, police on overtime and, you know, you, I don't need to go through the stigma with you guys. You understand what they, they most of those people were, were afraid of. And here we are a few years later and a lot of city, a couple of cities now have um, fought that uh, impact fee. And there's actually a lawsuit in Massachusetts going on right now. But the thing that bothers me about it, and I'm pretty sure the Massachusetts Cannabis Business Association did this study tracking where those impact fees go and are they actually going to the right people that the local town governments uh, who are the beneficiaries of this impact fee, are they doing it right and where is it going? And it was enlightening to say the least because half the towns did not report where that money was going. So, um, and again, it, there's so many elements and challenges um, to this to this industry, uh, Precious. Um, and obviously it is access to capital that continues to be the biggest barrier to entry. What are you seeing happening along those lines? Are you starting to see, um, I am, some multi-state operators actually creating opportunities for the economically empowered people that can come in and, 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 and get a license and, and work. Are you starting to see the ease? Is it getting any easier, I guess is my question. Sadly, it's not getting as easier as we would want it. Again, capital is probably one of, if not the highest barrier to entry. Because when you think about the landscape of what you amount, amount of money you need to really get these businesses up and running, and just quickly going back to Massachusetts, you know, I, I saw the article too that, you know, since 2018, they've collected upwards of $50 million in impact fees from host community agreements. So yeah, where are those dollars actually trickling down and circulating to? So you see the mass amount of, you know, revenue that's generated from this industry, you know, that's the impact. That's where we want to see some restoration, right? And then that revenue, should it not fund businesses that want to come online? And that's something we're very hopeful from the $200 million fund promised by Governor Hochul in New York that's saying, hey, we're going to actually create this to be able to support minority operators, to support people of color, those in those disadvantaged areas. You know, Minority Business, um, our association, Minority Cannabis Business Association, in our National Cannabis Equity Report, we did a study that found that not even half of all of the open markets have funding allocated for businesses, whether it's through revenue generated, whether it's through government programming, um, it's really not there, which then leaves a lot of businesses to the behest of private capital and private equity where they know that they're either gonna lose a lot of percentage of their hard work they put into, you know, they're subject to fees and predatory deals in terms of debt and interest rates. Again, we don't have access to traditional banking. So there's not banks that's giving us loans or, or you know, you know, fees that are actually doable to build a business. So you're really left with the bottom of the barrel when it comes to funding your business. And then again, where that action can come from, we lean towards the governments, the money that's generated, you know, at the end when, when the market is up and going is all well and good. But what happens at the beginning? That's when you know we see a lot of the corporations have this advantageous start to markets because they're the only ones who can really get in and stand up their businesses because of the capital. 
So we know we're realizing we no longer can wait. Day one equity is something that's very important for new markets. And that's where we're seeing the ball missed in New York, New Jersey. For instance, I always, I, I said this very publicly in New Jersey, there's six companies right now that really are the ones making that $24 million a month. They're giving out conditional licenses left, right, and center to everybody who are, are qualified. However, it's still gonna be some time before their doors are open. Some of them are fundraising. Some of them are even trying to still secure their property. So look at that start that they're gonna have before any person of color comes into that market. And again, that's what we don't wanna see in New York. So it's still very difficult, but you mentioned some MSOs are stepping up to the game, creating programs incubators that give capital, Ease Momentum program is one of them, um, that gives a $50,000, you know, no ties attached grant, I know, because I'm actually in the cohort with one of my, with my business that I have separately, but that is a rare find, you know, um, so it's very difficult, but that's what we're trying to do is reach out to legislators and say, we need help now, especially on a capital raise. It, it, it's interesting. That's been a theme, Josh, since the beginning, right? Uh, citizen lobbying. Right? I think you're, you're really what we're looking for here. Uh, reaching out to those politicians directly. Don't be afraid. In fact, we encourage it, encourage it to make change more than anything else. Um, Precious, you. it says here you're the COO and co-founder of Roll Up Life. Is that the company you're talking about? Yes, yes, yes. Um, prior to joining MCBA, so I'm doing both um, duality here, operator and advocate. Um, me and my childhood best friend started a CBD delivery company way back in about 2017, 2018, when we saw the tide change in New Jersey. Um, so we created a technology platform similar to that of Uber Eats to help facilitate delivery. And we're actually going after our delivery license in New Jersey. So I can speak to the barriers it's been taking to even just play this game, be in this industry. I am from a city called East Orange, New Jersey. And trust me, we understand marijuana. We understand this game more than anybody. And unfortunately, we were just locked up for it. We were just penalized for it more often than not. Um, our city has one of the highest incarceration rates for cannabis. Um, so now we're trying to step into a regulated space to safely do things a lot of us have been doing for a long time and it's not any easier. It's actually very sort of restrictive and say, why change? Why pay taxes on something I've pretty much been doing for a long time? So our goal is to be a delivery service in New Jersey coming up. Fantastic. Now, um, that's great, by the way. I, I, I support that 100, 100%. Uh, for sure, but um, I got I got distracted, so I'm going to throw it back to Josh here. Uh, go ahead, Josh. <laughs> yeah, I'm wondering about um, when lobbying and Congress, DC, is going to get behind uh, both the cannabis industry and the minority community and and give similar returns that other you know groups that have, have hired lobbyists have uh, have provided. So we were seeing every aspect of the economy in the last couple of years full-blown crisis mode and everyone getting involved in lobbying, the pharmaceutical and health product industry, for example, they've been spending the most on lobbying over the last 24 years. They spent 5.1 billion over that period of time uh, and outpaced all other uh, companies in lobbying spending. So the industry spent a record 356 million on lobbying just last year. That's 30% more than they did in 2009. Pfizer, for example, last year spent over 10 million lobbying and was the fourth largest political spender within that pharmaceutical and health product industry. 
prior to COVID, Pfizer was the most hated company in the least trusted industry. But during the pandemic, people were getting Pfizer tattoos. So is it branding, marketing? I, I don't know. But lobbying can produce an RI, R, a return on investment of over 20,000%. And that's uh, based on a, a NPR study uh, that's titled Forget Stocks and Bonds, Invest in a Lobbyist. When is a minority community going to be able to have those kinds of returns? I'll start with that. Mm. Cannabis, when you speak about it on a federal level, as, as progressive as you, as you think this country might be, it's kind of like the, the stain on the wall. Mind you, this is still a scheduled drug. Um, this is still highly taxed. When you think about the strong Republican arm we have and kind of, to be frank, rapidly growing, um, we're seeing a potential switch in Congress by the end of this year, um, where now the Congress will be controlled by our Republican um, fellows, you ladies and gentlemen. You can forget about any true cannabis reform coming out of that, um, that body for a long time. So we have a small window to kind of get any sort of cannabis, you know, ideas when it comes to banking, when it comes to even just federal legalization, federal decriminalization. It's a small window and it's not talked about. It's not talked about in the Biden administration, again, because it's not at the forefront. They don't really see the industry from the lens we see it as. But you know what always talks? Money. Right. I think now that the revenue, the number when New York comes online, and the numbers that New York, New Jersey, and these all these states will start to produce in, in tax revenue, that's what's gonna catch the eye because a lot of people don't know. Uber, um, a lot of the, the, the big delivery companies, Amazon, they have lobbied for cannabis before. They understand the trajectory of what cannabis can do, especially if it becomes federal legal where, it come, um, where interstate commerce is available. And now you can deliver from you know, New Jersey to New York and everything. Large distribution companies have been lobbying for cannabis because they see that. However, again, I just think it's still a ways because there's a lot of stigma on, on Capitol Hill about what cannabis does. There's still people calling it reefer madness. And that's what's being penetrated out on Fox News. You know, anything with a mass shooter who may have had cannabis in his system, God forbid, just mark out the whole industry. You know, so while lobbying does have that ROI on many other industries, it's especially different for cannabis, mainly because of the stigma. So you're right when it comes to branding, but just look at it as branding of the whole industry. They're not even understanding what we're doing here, yet alone to create progressive um, you know, rules and bills to support our industry. The fact that we can't even get something as simple as banking. And a lot of people confuse banking with it protecting large companies. The banking bill only says we're gonna grant access to banks if they choose to work with cannabis businesses, safe right. That's it. Right. Nothing more, nothing less. It doesn't guarantee anybody anything, but that alone can't even make it through Congress. It's passed the House six times and it never makes it through Senate. So you can even see, no matter how many lobbying dollars you throw out there, it's a stigma that we're looking to crack. And it really just starts by normalizing what we're doing. And I think it happens on a state level. And again, when the money talks from the revenue generated in these large markets, I think that'll start to get the attention. Are the lobbying efforts like a little bit too late? When you compare it to a huge industry and, and big companies that have that much money, uh, are the lobbying efforts on the cannabis side a little too late when you know maybe Big Pharma wants it to be rescheduled to uh, Schedule 2 only allowing Big Pharma? Yeah, I, you, you could say it's a little, bit, a little bit too late, but look how long the cannabis industry has been up and running since Colorado, since California. 
And there have been lobbying efforts there, but again, they've all been stalled really because of the stigma. Again, no matter what X value dollar, you know, I think about the NRA, you know, the gun lobbying, that's something we all look at and say, the hundreds of millions of dollars that's poured into upholding the second amendment, but not really fluctuated well where Americans are being protected, where we're not seeing what we're seeing now in our country. That's, that's a different beast. And that goes, that's rooted back centuries. Now, if cannabis would have had that same trajectory, maybe, but we're literally at the very beginning, no matter how far people think far along we are from all these new states coming online. I want to say about half of the states are online, either medical or recreational. And that's still the very beginning of the cannabis industry. So I think now the eyes are starting to open because again, more and more states are coming online because they were, a lot of people don't realize these states were impacted hard by COVID financially. And cannabis revenue is saving their butts. It's saving New Jersey's butts specifically. And that's why they're off Southern states who rebuke cannabis really are starting to create lanes for medical cannabis because they see that tax reform. I mean, that, that tax revenue. So again, I think we're at the beginning, the lobbying pressure still has to be there. Cause again, we're getting small support is incrementally and it's always gonna be a marathon, not a sprint like we know to be true in the cannabis industry but we can only stay true to it and then unite all of our efforts. Truly, that's how we'll get things done. Boy, that is a great way to wrap this baby up, uh, Precious. That was super. And, you know, we support anything that you guys do. If you ever need an audience, uh, please don't be afraid to ask. Uh, reach out to me, to Isabel Turner, who I know um, you have been in touch with, our production coordinator. Um, you know, we will help you guys in whatever capacity we can and mostly giving you a voice because that's why I started this darn network in the first place and having people like Josh Kincaid along and Christopher Smith from California now and um, we've got Jill Goldsberry in your backyard of New Jersey and by the way my first four years of my life were in West Orange. Oh I know that's right welcome to the oranges. (laughs) (laughs) And then my parents spoiled me by bringing me to the Boston area and, and we don't need to go there but we do need to take our final break and say goodbye because We've got uh, our new show coming up at uh, six o'clock. That's when we recap all the different states and what's been going on in the news over the last week or so. And that is anchored by Elena Pinto. And we encourage you to stay tuned for that. Uh, Josh, you did a great job. Thank you so much for uh, coming on board here. And uh, I look forward to working with you in the future. And and Precious, uh, I so appreciate uh, your time, your thoughts. And again, please uh, send our regards along to Coleco. Right on. Thank you, guys. Have a great evening. Thank you, Precious. Have a great weekend. That'll be it for uh, Green Rush Live for another Friday afternoon. Remember, it's a whole new world of weed out there. Use it responsibly, everybody. Have a great weekend, and we'll see you in a couple of weeks. Don't forget to smash that like button on your way out and check out these other videos that we've got. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hi, my name is Kira Reed, and I'd like to invite you to be inspired by the women who are leading in the cannabis industry. Each week, we will discuss empowerment, leadership, and what it means to be a woman in charge in marijuana, hemp, and CBD. As the founder of the Women Empowered in Cannabis community, I have had the great pleasure to get to know many brilliant and talented women who are CEOs, executives, 
politicians, advocates, and community leaders that are focused on creating a cannabis economy that is just, fair, and equal. We'll learn how these women make decisions, how they navigate a predominantly male industry, and what they're doing to level the playing field for women. I hope you'll join us.